Spend time with the Voices of Watch Collecting, a blog to watch's team broaches the most important topics in timepiece enthusiasm today. This is the Spending Time Show. All right, hello, watch fam. My name is Zachary Pina. I'm here with the blog to watch for a very special edition of Spending Time. I'm here with none other than Terry Vertz. Uh, Terry, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Awesome. So Terry, I um, what is on your business card these days? Because I, I have a feeling that ISS commander, space shuttle test pilot, fighter pilot, author, photographer. I mean, I feel like that's probably not going to fit. Um, and I've I've heard that that some card right here. there it is right there there it is right there. And what 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 does it say officially on there for? Our well, it says astronaut, there. astronaut, director, photographer, speaker, and author. I love it. I love it. Astronaut. And you're recently retired, right? Yeah, well, I left NASA over three years now, so okay. it's, been a, it's been a few years. Okay, and what was your what was your last mission in space? Expedition forty two and forty three. Actually, I just got back to Earth five years ago uh, last okay. week. Oh wow! <laughs> it was a two hundred day space uh, space station mission. Two hundred days. Do you you miss it? I would imagine. You know. Not really. I, I mean, I, it was great. I loved it, but Earth is pretty good too. Earth has some, <laughs> Earth has some things that space doesn't have. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, so seeing as seeing as we we had a blog to watch, we love the Omega Speedmaster. Um, we've got tons of watch fans. Obviously, it is sort of one of the most the world's. We are we cover so much of the world of Omega. And uh, the Speedmaster has long been one of our most popular subjects. And of course, you, I understand, are also a Speedmaster man, uh, also being an astronaut, but also having been kind of in the Omega family prior to that. Um, what, uh, as, as we tend to kind of start a lot of these conversations off, what is on your wrist today? We'll do a quick wrist check. On my wrist today, I've got a Speedmaster. The, the black, black, the dark side of the moon. Um, I love this watch. The, the wristband is really comfortable you know it's this uh kevlar style band and it's really light it's the ceramic watch so it's pretty awesome when i was when i was looking uh for a watch the some folks said oh it's all black you won't be able to see the time and it's not a problem at all you can totally see the time which is kind of surprising because it's a pretty black watch but it's i it's 9 15 right now like it's not a problem at all i love it um, i love it so it's, it's just a, it's a cool watch it's a super cool watch, and I kind of, I kind of feel like, for me, I mean, even even in my own sort of imagination, that's the type of watch that I, I would love to picture an astronaut wearing. So I was low key thrilled <laughs> to see that that was actually what was on your yeah. watch. Um, I am not wearing, I'm not wearing a moon watch per se, but I'm also wearing a Speedmaster. This is the Solar Impulse, and so oh, very cool. this is from a couple years ago, but it is a GMT, um, and there is an X33 Solar Impulse, and we'll be talking a lot about the X33 hmm. a little bit uh, a little bit later in this conversation. Um, do you wear a do you wear a watch at all times on all missions um, going back to when you're in space? Oh yeah, 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 for sure. For for space, I brought my X thirty three too. Oh, you did! I oh, wonderful. It, I keep it in a bag because um, <laughs> like my, I flew in space and I like to protect it and I have a safe deposit box for it. So uh, yeah, the X thirty three is the watch we wear in space because it has a lot of functionality that you need: uh, digital timers, alarms, a, a lot of different things. Do you were you issued that watch or was that no? So okay. um, NASA actually lends you a watch, and then is after you land and you're you're still busy and like you're trying to walk out of the spaceship, they're like, "Here you go, give us your watch back." And so they're 
like pulling the watch off your wrist as soon as you land. No so I bought this one. Um, okay. And had it. it actually was shipped to the Kennedy Space Center. The, the suit technicians, the guys that put the suit on us, like a day or two before launch, were down there, you know, adjusting the wristband for me and get, making sure it fit and stuff. <laughs> oh, that's super cool. So that, so that watch in front of you, that X33, and, and to our viewers, that is the, my understanding is that's the Gen 2 X33. It was the Gen 1, and then they changed the crown design. I believe it has a, the, uh, yeah. what do they call it, the honey, it's like the honey dipper, the dipper style crown that has the grooves on it. The, the current oh, yeah, X33 yeah, yeah. has it as yeah. well. And it has a full right. digital display. Um, so, right. so, so that's your personal watch and that's the space flown watch. It is. Yeah, it is. Wonderful. So you, you do, you do feel a, a very direct connection to these things that you kind of carry with you. There's a, there's an emotional connection for you between. Oh yeah, absolutely. I have a box. Yeah. I have a box of stuff in my bedroom of, of different things that I flew in space between, between my shuttle flight and my Soyuz flight. So yeah, absolutely. It's a connection. And my poor kids are going to get this box of stuff when I die that they don't know what's in there. But <laughs> for me, it's a big deal. I love that. Did, did you did you take any things, any any sentimental objects up there? Where are you allowed to take sentimental things with you just to just to have them in space and then to be able to bring them back down to Earth? Yeah, on this on the shuttle, um, we could take you know a pretty good size box of stuff. So family pictures. You bring a bunch of jewelry to give your family and friends. Um, a watch, I brought a watch, uh, watches for my parents or for my dads. And then one for my son. Also, I brought a Leatherman for my son. The other day I needed a leather, I needed like a screwdriver or something. And he gave me this Leatherman and I'm like, dude, that's the Leatherman. You see that FTS 130, Matthew Burks on the side. That's the Leatherman I flew in space for you. This like, is a very special Leatherman. Go get a not use screwdriver. This. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's great. So, um, yeah, but on the Soyuz, we had a little bag. It was one and a half kilograms, so it was a lot smaller. Okay. But still, you can bring stuff, which is really nice. Yeah, oh, that's super cool. So I, I, would, I would imagine everybody kind of brings, you see all kinds of interesting stuff up there then in that, in that regard. Yeah, yeah, but there's something, you know, everybody, and then you get your mission uh, jewelry, you know, like 130 or... Uh -huh, like the pins like and stuff. And then you give those out to everybody for Christmas presents and stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. I love it. That, that, that's, that's truly amazing. Is, is the, is this particular X33 that you have in front of you, is that the only space worn or space flown watch that, uh, that you've got? I have two. This is, you I, have I have this from, yeah, I have this from the shuttle and then I have one for my, uh, Expedition 43. Oh, very cool. So I have two different, I have two different ones. That one has a Kevlar band. I went with a Kevlar uh -huh. band on my second flight cause it was such a long mission and yeah. And you don't know if you're if you're gonna swell up or shrink, and the yep. you know it's adjustable. Whereas the titanium band is is kind of it's not really adjustable without getting the tools out. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure you want to lose a spring bar in zero gravity. I have enough trouble yeah. with them here. In the <laughs> it'll go shooting off and it's done forever. Yeah. So. Gone forever. Yep. Yeah, Space junk. <laughs> do you um do you see a lot of other speedmasters in and around the ISS or with some of your other fellow crewmen while you're up there as well? Yeah, everybody. I mean, literally everybody wears X33. Uh, it's a, it's a great watch. Now I I have the Gen Two, like you said. Um, oh. That's my favorite. I love that. Uh, but Samantha, uh, my Italian astronaut friend, had a Gen Three, 
Yes. So they, they have a deal with the European Space Agency to provide those. So basically, That's it's, correct. it's similar. I've got one of those right here in front of me. Yeah, so you're, you're this Jennifer. is the, the nickname Skywalker, and it is uh, ESA flight certified as well. So we'll be going over that in a little bit. So she had one of the new ones. Okay. She had one of the new ones, yeah. Very cool. Um, what does, what, what time zone, you know, are all operations performed under while in space? And so as, as with regards to the importance of time, obviously, between communications, between ground and the earth, or between ground and, and where the mission is, what, um, what is the formal kind of timetable that everyone operates on? And I would imagine there's some sort of synchronization. Yeah. So the space station is on GMT. It is GMT, okay. Uh, the space shuttle, there, our schedule on the space shuttle was based on MET or mission elapsed time, which uh -huh. is basically time since you lifted off. Uh-huh. Okay. So that, I have a question about that in a few minutes, but maybe, actually, maybe, maybe we'll just jump to that right away. I mean, the X-33 is unique in that the traditional analog, the full analog moon watch, the, the, the moon watch, the space with the Hesalite crystal, kind of the, the Omega right. Speedmaster that everybody knows, um, doesn't calculate MET on that level. So the X-33 that we have in front of us is, is unique in that it calculates MET and also PET. Can you take us through what the difference between those two times are and why yeah. they are so crucial? Yeah. I, I forgot. I also have one of those, the original Moonwatch, on a big oh, elastic strap because uh, the Russians actually gave you that for your spacesuit so that if, there's a, if oh, you're yeah. stuck and there's a leak, air leak or depressurization and you puff up, you'd still have a watch on your thing. And so it's not on a normal band, it's on a stretchy elastic band. So I have a moon watch with this big giant, you know, to go on the outside of the space. Oh, that's extremely cool. But all it does is tell time. There's no alarms or anything like right, that. Right, right, right. That's all you need, right. So the difference between MET and PET, MET is mission elapsed time, so it's time since you took off. Uh, you know, as soon as the rocket lifts off, you hit your watch and that's your time. PET, is phase elapsed time, and we use that for different procedures. So, okay. uh, you're on a spacewalk. Uh, it's the time when you go to your when when you turn your battery on. That's when your PET starts. Um, if you're doing some task, it's like the time for an individual task, and MET, MET is the time for an individual mission. Right. So, if you're going to run, if you're going to do some procedure, uh, you have to cycle water through the spacesuits as a right. like a main. You're, you're cleaning, you're flushing out your spacesuit. Right. Um, you, could, you could start a separate smaller timer and that would be PET. Got it. Okay. So MET, you said your last, uh, your last mission was 200 days. So the MET, the MET for that was 200 <clears throat> days. So you're, you're actually MET recalculated. Was, it was like 199 and 16 wow. or 18 hours or something. Oh, like that. right. Less so, the, the list so off that, time. That's the, hit your, so if Monday through Friday, if you go on a business trip and it's, mm -hmm. you leave Monday, you come back Friday, if that's a, some people would say that's a five day trip, right? Mm -hmm. You're, it's, and so we call those flight days. Right. So my mission was actually 201 flight days. Wow. If Monday through Friday is five days, or if you okay. hit the watch and you just count MET, it was like 199 and three quarters. Wow. So it just depends on how you count the time. Okay. Okay. That, that makes, that makes so much more sense. And it also makes sense why, you would need a digital calculator for that and not the analog because the analog counts, uh, you know, it's a, it's a finite number 12. I believe it's a 12 hour register, yeah. 12, 30 minute. And then <laughs> so wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't quite, wouldn't quite cut it for the longer, <laughs> for the longer mission. For anything over a day. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so 
also unlike the traditional Speedmaster Moonwatch, uh, which was certified for flight by NASA. So the X-33 that you, you have in front of you and also the X-33 Skywalker that I have in front of me, um, they both have alarms. Uh, why, why is an alarm? So you're talking about uh, phase elapsed time and also setting smaller countdowns for various tasks and stuff like that. Why would having an alarm be, be helpful or useful? Well, first of all, it's what woke me up every day. I'd set my alarm. I, I just left my watch on my wrist at night and it floats. It's not like it, on earth. I take my watch off all the time because I don't want it on my skin. But in space, it just kind of floated and hovered there. So, um, and then oh, you know, beep, 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 it would beep, you know, wake me up. But if you're flushing out the spacesuit or if you're doing an science experiment, literally every day there's probably five things that you need to time. Or if you're having a pass over a place on Earth, you could set an alarm to remind you. So you could either set the alarm based on the time of day, GMT, or based on, you know, in 10 minutes, uh, have a timer, or in 20 minutes, have a timer that would beep after that number of minutes. I, I In order to get pictures of places, sometimes I would just remember and float down and take the picture. And then sometimes I would forget and the pyramids, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, crap, like go down there and I could see them. I could see them off from the distance, you know? So finally, a set full alarm. rotation is 90 minutes or something. Not 90 that's, minutes per orbit. Yeah. That's your, that's your window. But you don't, <laughs> you, just, you don't come back on the same place because the earth moves. Right. So your, your orbit is the same like this, but the earth is moving underneath mm, you. Right. So, so 90 minutes later, that same thing that you just saw is now way over there. Okay, um, so I have some, some specific photography-related questions that we're going to get to in a minute. But while we're on this, I want to know, did you use your watch or were you able to calculate when the best, the optimal angle or viewing position of, for example, the pyramids would be outside the window? Or was it kind of like, maybe that wasn't so good, I'll wait another 90 minutes for another pass? Like, well... <laughs> The way I use my watch is you could go on our world map software or it's kind of like Google Maps and for, for NASA, uh, not nearly as good as Google Maps. <laughs> and you, it would predict what time you would be over, you know, a place. And so I would okay. set my arm based on okay. Wow. So you, you had, so you had like a, a checklist then probably. Um, yeah. Well, for the, for the different shots that you wanted to get. Yeah. For the shots that you want to get, there was computer software and you could um, look on there to see when you were going to be over a place. Um, so you could either look on the map of the earth and calculate it that way. Or if there was places of interest before you launched, you, you would give them a list of a hundred different things you want to take a picture of. So those would pop up on the side, kind of like as your favorites. Yeah. That's super cool. That's super cool. Um, okay. So real quick, uh, I have I've I've set I've set this alarm on this X thirty three to twenty five seconds, so it's a quick little countdown. Um, can you list off any specific tasks or events? And you already you already listed a couple of them, so but right. we'll blast back through them real quickly okay. um, on board the spacecraft that require this type of timekeeping, and of course. You know, Omega Speedmaster fans are familiar with how the the original moonwash was used during uh, the disastrous the Apollo 13 mission to time the booster thrusts, I believe. Right, um, right. So that was one particular example. So I'm going to start start the timer here and uh, list them off as you go. Well, one of them is when you're doing spacewalks to time the length of a spacewalk. Uh, one of them is when you're working on spacesuits. Uh, you have to flush water through the system just to clean it out, and that's for a very specific amount of time. 
Um, when a cargo ship docks or any spaceship docks, you have to leak out the air and then give it some time to stabilize. So there you go. And now you can hear there it. There it goes. You time. Yeah. So wait, so I feel like this is a crucial detail. So you said car docking, we're talking about docking now. And that was the, yeah. that was the X-33 alarm just now. Sorry yeah. to cut you off. Yeah. So if a, if a vehicle docks, um, you can't just open the hatch like you do in Hollywood. You have to, drain, <laughs> you have to drain the air and, and then you have to, or you have to fill air back in. So there's not a vacuum. And then this metal on the spaceship versus the metal on the space station can be really different temperatures. So you want to give it time to like stabilize, thermally stabilize. Mm. So that whole process of having vacuum and filling it up with air and letting the temperature stabilize, there's a bunch of different steps you go through, but each step has to be timed. And um, this is the only, you know, there, you can either use a timer on the space station or you just use it to watch. Right. Yeah, I was, I'm, I'm really impressed with how quickly and easily you can, like once the timers goes off, it immediately resets and then you just, you can just start it again. And so if there's, and you can right. set up to a hundred different, there's a hundred, I'm not sure if your X33 has the same yeah. volume, but um, the current, the Skywalker, you can set up to a hundred, it appears to be a hundred different timers and they can all be different. The, the new one. So you can, yeah, you can cycle it through. So many quite, features. Right. <laughs> so the, the new one actually has so many features. There's literally uh, an Omega iPad app for it. Right. It walks you through <laughs> how to how, use it. How to it's do it. Yeah. It, it takes you some time to get used to it. But once you know how to do it, then you can, you, you can time a lot of different things. It's really, the capability is pretty amazing. I was, I was glad to hear that because I had to go through the manual and then I was just thinking, you know, a few days ago, gosh, I, I would imagine that at some point the repetition of this has got to be second nature and it gets easier for you guys. But there's a reason that you're doing it and not me. So. <laughs> well, in space, you're doing it all the time. So you're used to, as long as you're doing it, you're used to it. But, you know, if it's been a few months and then you forget, then you got to look up how to do it. <laughs> like there's a feature to synchronize the digital time with the hands. You know, when you do a battery change, the hands don't match up with the digital. Oh, right. And um, it's pretty simple. It's like you push this button and that button, and it, it only takes a second. But I, but I would, you know, it. When, by the time I had to change my battery, it had been six months or something. It was a long time. Uh, so I had to ask. I emailed a buddy on the ground, and he emailed me the Omega PDF, uh, you know, instruction manual. And I was in space. Oh yeah, you push this button, that button, and it was easy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, so as we kind of, I, I, like I said, I have some questions for you about uh, more photography kind of driven things, but um, can you kind of, can you trace back to your first exposure to an Omega watch, maybe the first time that Omega as a brand resonated or, or appeared kind of in your, right. in your um, kind of in your experience? Maybe it was a watch that was issued to you or a colleague or it was part of your military background. Right. So now you've done a well, I remember as a kid, seeing Omega advertisements. I mean, they were always associated with the moon, um, the Speedmaster Moonwatch, and as a kid, I knew about that. So I just, in my brain, Omega has always been Spacewatch uh, because of that association with Apollo. So it started really young for me, just seeing advertisements. Oh, that's super cool. And so what was your first, um, what, was, what was the first time a space mission or the, 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 the world of the astronauts world? When was the first time that that kind of appeared in your... Um... Well, so when you get to the, 
Johnson Space Center, all the flown astronauts have their X-33s on their wrist, right? Yes. And I, I had my Timex on my wrist. Yeah. Uh, so my Air Force issued, you know, 49.99 Timex watch. So it was like, I want one of those Omegas. And, and then NASA doesn't give them to you. You know, some of the other space agencies uh, have a much different a, a, a opinion towards these things. But <laughs> so then I'm like, you know what? I've been waiting. And, it, and I had to wait 10 years for my first flight. I was an astronaut for a long time before I flew. Oh, wow. Yeah. But there was a lot of reasons. Basically, everybody waited between 8 and 12 years for their first flight. It was a long time. But it was worth it. Um, but so I'm like, I'm buying myself my own X-33. So I, uh, so that was pretty exciting. It, I had been an astronaut for almost 10 years when it finally showed up at the Kennedy Space Center right before. That's immensely cool. How cool is it too for your shipping address to be the Kennedy Space Center? <laughs> I can't get over that. I mean, that's true. <laughs> I should have saved the body. I never even got the box from that. I should have saved yeah. That's super cool. So to kind of talk a little bit about your, your career um, as an astronaut and how that's, you know, you were a, a test pilot, a fighter pilot. I know you're, you're trilingual, bilingual. You speak multiple languages. I know. Um, French and Russian. Can I take us through the yeah. pathway that, that, uh, that it took for you to become an astronaut? I know this is probably a question you get fairly often, but I feel like the pathway that every, um, every astronaut takes is a little bit different, although there are some common themes between them. So every astronaut's path to become an astronaut is a little bit different. Um, I watched the right stuff. Actually, I read the right stuff when I was a teenager in high school. Chuck Yeager and the early Mercury astronauts. It was, yes. you know, and it talks about how those guys got to do it. They were fighter pilots and test pilots. Yeah. And it was pretty awesome. I, I mean, so it really inspired me and it showed me the path to do. So I did exactly that path. I went to be an F-16 pilot and then test pilot and then eventually to NASA. And so that was my way. But, it, you know, there are scientists who go through a science mm -hmm. path or medical doctors who become medical doctors. Uh, and those are great also. But um, for me, it was the test pilot route. That's immensely cool. That's immensely cool. So wait, you, and you were, you were 10 years, so you became, you formally became an astronaut. Astronaut was on your business card. And then it took 10 years for you to be able to take your first flight, more or less a decade, kind of waiting in the yeah. wings. Or are you, what, what, what are you doing in that intro? Well, you're, you're being a support for other flights going on. So I showed up at NASA in 2000 as an ASCAN, an astronaut candidate. <laughs> um, they make you feel, they make you feel special when you get there. And then, uh, the original astronaut training is about a year. Now it's a year and a half. Uh, you just learn about, for me, the space shuttle and the space station. Now they only have to learn about the space station, but then, um, you go into technical assignments. So I had different ones. I worked on the T-38 program. Uh, I worked as a Capcom for years. I was a robotics branch chief. I was the SLS chief for a year. So I did different technical assignments through my time. Uh, I was a crew support astronaut for a couple of other guys going in space. So while they were going on these six-month missions, I was, I was their guy on the ground to go to meetings on their behalf or help their family out with whatever or just do what they needed done, you know, their support guy. So I, I did a lot of that stuff for a while, and it was fun. It was really interesting. Uh, I did training, so I did some spacewalk training, rendezvous training, um, a lot of space shuttle landing. I was a pilot, so a lot of what I did was space shuttle landing training. So I practiced to land that thing for you know for eight years, anyway, eight or nine years, um, before finally getting assigned. But 
there were some shuttle problems that slowed things down. They had hired way too many astronauts. Between 95 and 2000, NASA hired, I think, 125 astronauts. Um, and then there was the Columbia accident that just stopped everything for a couple of years. And then NASA only flew flown astronauts because the space station assembly flights were so complicated they couldn't fly rookies right. for a while. And then they started flying rookies and we did fine. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so all these things piled up on top of each other. It was just a long wait, but it was a, it was a fun job even without flying. Right. Um, and it was definitely worth the wait. That's immensely cool. That's immensely cool. And I, I love I love the fact that it almost becomes a, a family of sorts. This you, you, the astronauts create their own. I mean, this is its own support network for just a couple yeah. of men and women that are in space. That's extremely absolutely. Cool. Um, so one of one of my favorite things about your dossier is your your this incredible diversity of work experience that you have is the fact that you're a photographer and at Blog to Watch, all of us are more or less love shooting things on a macro level. Mm -hmm. And to me, what's the most exciting about seeing the photographs that you've published in your book that's actually just behind you, The View from Above. Yeah. Shameless plug. I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, so, so thank you for, for putting that out there for us. The thing that I love about it is, you know, here, here I am on earth, like taking photos of this tiny thing with a macro lens and I'm, I'm hovering, you know, I'm inches away from shooting this thing so that we can, we can look at some element on the dial or the LCD crystal. And you're up there using, you know, I'd love for you to take us through your camera gear, but you're shooting the complete spectral opposite of what macro photography is. Right. And, um, or the galaxy. I have, yeah, I have yeah. I mean, pictures and one of them is just the galaxy. It's in my, it's in my studio. Just the yeah. galaxy. Yeah. <laughs> take us through take us through some of the gear that you use and how did you how did you develop this skill set were you a photographer on earth and then you transferred that up into space yeah as a kid my parents got me a Konica uh, SLR so it's like okay. a Konica camera you put the film in you know you could change out the lenses you'd have to you know take a picture and to the next one and take a picture <laughs> so and nobody was a photographer so I had to learn um, aperture and shutter speed yeah. and focus and exposure and all that stuff. And then you, when the roll, when you were done shooting a roll, you'd ship it out. And a couple of weeks later, it would come back. You know, it's like we went to the cheap place. It was two dollars and ninety nine cents to get your roll on <laughs> developed. So that was how I learned how to do photography. So growing up, and then as an adult, I always had a camera around my neck. Um, now you've got the iPhone, you know, this is the camera I carry yeah. most of the time. Yeah. But in space, the gear, we, we use mostly Nikon for our day-to-day -day shooting. When I was there, it was a D4. Now they have D5s, just a Nikon, Nikon professional camera. Wow. Every lens you could imagine from an 8-millimeter super fisheye lens to an 800-millimeter with a doubler, basically telescope, Whoa. and everything in between. And these cameras are just Velcroed to the walls. It's like a photographer's head. Wow. Um, Wait, there, so that, that was one of my questions was, how do you get the camera stable enough in zero gravity? So you're saying it's Velcroed to the sides of the... Well, it's Velcroed there, you just grab it and then you take it. So oh. if it's like just somebody inside, you just take the picture. But if it's right, um, if it's daylight, you just look out the window and take the picture because it's so bright. You know, it's a 1 500th or 1 1,000th shutter speed. So right. that's fine. But if it's nighttime, you're usually shooting about a tenth of a second. So really slowly. And you're moving eight kilometers a second. So <laughs> you put it on a bracket, but you're hundreds of miles away, you know. So you put the cameras at nighttime or for a long duration photo uh, on a bracket. And then 
hit go and then just don't touch it and it'll float there and take a picture. Wow. Wow. Do you have a, do you have a preferred lens for, you know, do you have a pyramid lens and then <laughs> maybe yeah, a galaxy lens? It's funny. Everybody kind of goes through different, um, lens phases. Uh, the Nikon has a series of F uh, 2.8 lenses, the zoom lenses. So the 17 to 35 was kind of my favorite. There was a 14 to 24, which was okay, but it was like super wide angle and you'd start to mm -hmm. get the distortion on the edges. Mm -hmm. um, so I use a 17 to 35 for most of my big picture earth stuff. But then they had a, I think 24 to 70, which is kind of a mid range lens. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I went through that phase. Uh, and then they have a 70 to 200, which is the zoom in lens. Mm -hmm. And then we have the 400 and 800 millimeters. And taking those pictures was cool. It was kind of a challenge. Um, but to be honest, if I want a close-up picture of something, I could just go there on Earth. <laughs> what I can't do on Earth is a, is a picture of Earth, right? So I, right. I prefer the, the wider angle. Like most of my shots right. for that. But sometimes I would do the zoom-in ones too. Yeah, that's actually, that's actually a very good point. I mean, why? Yeah, I mean, to be able to to be able to show the curvature, to be able to show the the blue and the depth, and I just I'm blown. I was I'm blown away by the stuff that you've and it, for a time, I believe you you no one had taken more photos in space than you, and I'm not sure if that record still stands unofficially. But is that still the? I think that's the unofficial. Yeah, when I got back, <laughs> there's some poor guy in Houston whose job was to count pictures and. They told me, Terry, you took more pictures than anybody ever. So I don't know. Maybe somebody else has since then, but I, I kind of doubt it. <laughs> so. Keep the crown. This I should email them and ask. <laughs> yeah. That was my unofficial record. Yeah. So of, of these, of all of these photos that you've taken, do you have a, is there a particular favorite or it's not, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to ever choose a favorite. So I've got my book here. Uh, this was cool because it was a National Geographic book. I love the cover photo of the Bahamas. Yes. The Caribbean um, is just a beautiful place. There's so many good, there's so many great pictures. Um, uh, th here's the one. This is the last picture I took in space. Uh, wow. I, yeah, when I took that picture, I remember looking at, I looked at the preview lens and I said, this is the best picture I'm ever going to take in my life. I'm done. So I just put the camera down, downloaded the pictures and went back. Wow. And that was the last one. That was the last picture I took. I yeah. I love that. I love that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure we can top that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> quite frankly. Um, so one thing, one thing on a blog to watch that uh, watch fans are really excited to see in the recent in the recent uh, the recent SpaceX launch. People were really excited to see the X33 on the wrist of some of your friends and colleagues. I would imagine. Right. Um, I believe it was on Doug's wrist. Um, during some of the testing phases and also on the, the successful launch day. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your reaction to the, the SpaceX launch? I mean, not, not so much from a watch geek's perspective, but from <laughs> an astronaut, an insider. Yeah. Were you excited? Were you hopeful? Maybe a little jealous? It sounds like you weren't maybe jonesing to go back to space immediately. So. <laughs> you know, I've always said I, I, I would go back to space if I could make a movie. That would be kind of the, uh, the one, the one re reason that I'd want to go back. Um, no, but it was, it was good. It's been a long time in coming. I think it was more like fine. The reaction was probably finally, you know, we're finally doing this. Um, it's something that we need for the space station. You need to be able to send astronauts to and from the space station. So, and we've been doing that without, uh, you know, we've been doing that on the R Russian Soyuz, which I've got a, a Soyuz model up there. And I thought that looked fun. Um, 
Yeah, it's 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 kind of small. It's in the corner, but um, anyway, it. I'm thankful to the Russians that, that we've had the Soyuz. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't have had a way to get to the space station. And I love flying on the Soyuz. If I got to fly again, I'd love to go on a Soyuz again. But um, uh, it, you know, it's it's America needs to have its own rocket too. So right. it was more. It was like LeBron James' reaction when he finally won the. Yeah, <laughs> one uh, dependent. You know, like it's about time. Only that's not a verbatim quote. <laughs> right, right, right. No, I mean that that sums it up perfectly. And I think for for myself and you know a legion of of watch and also space fans, I think right. the rest of us breathe sort of a collective sigh of like, thank God, like now now what's next? Like what's the next thing? What are we going after next? Right. I mean, it seemed like it was that crucial first step. Um, so I'm going to repeat a question that, um, that I know you, you were asked a number of years ago. Um, but I only want to know if your opinion on this particular topic has changed since then. I think it was from a 2017 interview. So it's, it's not new anymore, but given the recent developments with SpaceX, um, do you think we'll have a a human on Mars in, in this lifetime? So Mars is an interesting question. And when I had a chance to go visit Congress after both my flights or, um, I spoke at a White House Space Council meeting uh, two years ago, and I told Vice President Pence and I told all the senators and congressmen the same exact thing. It's not about the rocket science. It's about the political science. Yes. And if we can get our political science right and not so dysfunctional and not changing our direction every four years, then it's possible. You can't run a space program based on political ideology. Like yeah. Science doesn't care about your politics. You can make social security policy and immigration policy and fiscal policy. You can change that based on politics, but science doesn't care about it. So when you do that, it means that you never really accomplish anything and you just spin your wheels forever, Um, which is why it took us almost 10 years to be able to fly in space. And all all we did was launch someone into Earth orbit. All we did was what Yuri Gagarin did in 1961. So... that's my take on that. But getting to, getting to the moon is one thing. It's hard. It's expensive. It's dangerous. Getting to Mars is like an order of magnitude or more difficult just because of the time. It's not that the distance doesn't matter. It's the time, uh, the amount of time that rocket has to be in space. And so I think the key to going to Mars is developing better space propulsion so that you can shrink that time. Right. Uh, so you get there quicker. Uh, a normal chemical rocket takes three years to get there and back just because you have to wait for the planets to go around the sun right, and align. Right. Um, if you had a, an electric propulsion rocket, you could get there and back in, in one year. So you could get there and back in the same, in the same uh, path around the sun. Um, so that, I think that's what we need to do to get to Mars. I love it. And I, I love what you're saying about the importance of consistency in political science. I feel like um, I had a conversation with uh, Thomas Stafford, General Stafford, last summer um, at a separate Omega event, and he he echoed the same thing in consistency in, in policy and you know a clear mission that can kind of transcend a single um, a single presidential uh, tenure, essentially. Right. So, yeah, fingers fingers crossed. I mean, like I said, the 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 SpaceX launch got all of us really excited, and I feel like it hopefully whets the appetite for yeah. um, this administration and the and the administrations to come as well to to keep the to keep the momentum going. That's the hope for sure. Yeah, and Boeing has a capsule that's going to come out that's too. What I've heard. Yeah, so both SpaceX and Boeing are going to have a capsule to get people to and from the space station. 
And a little competition's good, I would imagine, because you know it, it elevates the other, and everyone is consistently pushing. I would, I would hope. <laughs> yeah, you know, without Ford, Chevy's not working very hard. That's exactly right. That's exactly <laughs> without, right. Without the Yankees, the Red Sox aren't doing much. So. <laughs> without Liverpool, you know, Manchester's uh, eating fried chicken and and bonbons. So you gotta you gotta have competition. <laughs> I amen to that. I couldn't, I, we, we couldn't, we couldn't put a bow on this any, any better than that, I think, quite frankly. Um, Terry, this has been an absolute joy. Um, and I know that you, you kind of, you teased a forthcoming book project. Um, no need to, no need to fetch it, but does it have a title yet that you can maybe share with our audience or tease or kind of give us a, a sneak peek at what might be coming? Yeah, it's called How to Astronaut. And it's a collection of 51 essays that uh, talk about everything from stuff you'd expect how to train for shuttle uh, uh, emergencies, how to film an IMAX movie in space, how to be a doctor. Oh some, some things that you don't expect. Um, what do you do if your engine won't work and you're stuck in space? Or what do you do with a dead body if your crewmate dies? And there's some other funny, crazy chapters also. Actually, this week I'm recording it. I'm going to the studio all day, every day. I'm the voice talent for it. So it's, oh, wonderful. Uh, it's gonna be read by author. That's amazing. I, um, I'll pre-order it as soon as that, that can be made available. So How to Astronaut by Terry Virts, The View from Above, also by Terry. Your photography is incredible. Um, today, we were talking about the Speedmaster X33. Um, and if you're joining us from YouTube or you're, you're catching this on the podcast as well, you can see photographs of this X33, the X33 that Terry has worn in space on a blog to watch.com. Plenty more content over there. Um, Terry, again, I can't thank you enough for taking your time uh, and, uh, and sharing your stories. This has, been a, this has been a joy. Thank you. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. Cheers. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you down the road.